0: This week marks eight years of being sober for Josh. And in this special episode, we dive into his story. We talk about the challenges he's faced along the way, getting clarity, finding resilience, and the importance of self care. It's a really special episode. I felt honoured to have the conversation with Josh, and I hope you enjoy.
1: This is 115 Miles with Josh Connolly and Hassan Kyle. Living exactly 115 miles apart, our lives could not have been more different growing up. Yet we find ourselves today as really good friends with many similar outlooks and perspectives. Join us on our podcast as we take a topical dive into life, work, culture, and everything in between.
0: So I was talking to a friend of mine in Oregon yesterday, and... um, he was, uh, he was very generous, he was talking about uh, the podcast, he's listening to it, and he, uh, he gave some very generous feedback. He said that one of the things that we tend to do is quite a blokey sort of everything's all right sort of um, start to our podcast, which is, uh, you'll ask me how I am, I'll ask you how you are, and we'll go, yeah, I'm good, I'm all right, you know? And it's almost like a frontage to kind of what we're really feeling. And I thought it was a really powerful insight Uh, So thank you to Noah in Oregon. Um, Good buddy. Um, So I wanted to start it a bit differently. And I wanted to ask you for a word uh, that sums up how you're feeling.
1: Word that sums up how I'm feeling. Word that sums up how I'm feeling. Emotional. Mm. Say more. It's a big week for me. I think we're probably going to get into it today. But the, so um, uh, it's the, the week of when I got sober eight years ago. So I'm coming up to like my sobriety date. And um, in the run up to that, I think I'm always a little bit emotional like this. Whenever I'm particularly whenever I'm doing something like that, I would never have imagined myself doing sitting and doing a podcast with you, absolutely being one of them, it makes me feel a real mix of emotion, sadness, um, regret and remorse, all that sort of emotion, and then happiness and joy and excitement for where I'm at. So I, uh, you know, and the more awake to my feelings that I've become in, in, in my journey, the more I notice the mixed bag that I feel during this week.
0: That's really powerful um, for me um, I think the word that I'm feeling most this week is melancholy um and it's really i will sort of say in a moment um why that's why that's interesting for me to say it, but melancholy is because I'm really missing like my mum and my sister who live. Um, up in London Mm. and um haven't been able to see them for ages and you know phone calls and video is a substitute of kind but it's not the same thing um and so feeling quite sort of sad about that and uh and even though I think um there's a possibility to kind of to go and see and kind of the rules are being relaxed I think it's just knowing that actually I can't see them together and you know, and that sort of making me think about, well, how long is this going to go on for? Because no one really knows. So that's a very honest answer about how I'm feeling. But what kind of was interesting for me in my conversation with uh, Noah yesterday was I, I recognize, and you'll know this about me, that I, I often play the kind of the, the role of kind of make everything all right for everyone, right? Mm. And so even in inadvertently what I do is, I sort of put uh, a front on, you know, and I'm not even aware of it sometimes. So I've been saying to everyone, yeah, I'm great. You know, every every week we do a podcast, you say, how are you doing? And I'm great. And on the most part, I'm feeling genuinely um, positive about things. But I think maybe what I was suppressing was some of this sort of feeling around uh, a, a, a sense of loss, you know, of not being able to do certain things. Mm. Um, so that's why I wanted to have a more... Um, sincere approach to how we open up our conversation
1: this um, week. Listen, obviously, I love that. Yeah, that's right, right up my street, and I'm glad it's kind of been brought up. I'm, it's the, the response of when people ask you how how are you doing, right? Is something that I have actually genuinely uh, thought about a little bit throughout, like what we're experiencing, because obviously people put a little bit more of an emphasis on that question now as well. Like when genuinely when you're, you know, video calling, which is what we're doing most of the time with everyone now, they do say, how are you doing in this current situation? And I always give the same answer. You know, I'm, I'm all right. You know, like there's that part of me that wants to allude to the fact that I am struggling a little bit, but I also don't want to look like I'm really struggling with it. So I give that generic, yeah, you know, up and down, to be expected. So I think it's uh, it's good. We should become aware of that because I I I had noticed that we do do that at the beginning of the podcast.
0: Yeah, me too. And
1: every time when you ask me how's your week, been, I I always know that I'm giving this same generic answer. So maybe uh, yeah, we'll always find a way. If, if when you do it when when you're forced to do a word, it sort of pushes you to actually think about something that captures how you're really feeling.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think, um, you know, there's, there's what you were saying about not necessarily wanting or wanting to protect in a particular way. I think it's also on on top of that. It's, you don't necessarily want to feel like you're burdening somebody else with kind of what's really going on. So you'll just cope with it. You're also aware of, you know, your relative kind of feelings about what's going on and being aware of other people and what they're going through. So um, so you sort of maybe hold back and it's very su- su- superficial level. Yeah, everything's fine. Let's move on to business. And actually I think it's dangerous because actually what you miss virtually is connectivity. It's body language. It's resonance. Like if you know, if someone's saying, if you're in, if they're in front of you and they're saying, yeah, I'm fine, but actually you can feel it in the energy that, uh, in the space that they're really not fine, you can do something about it. So mm. I think it would be good to explore, um, what's a more meaningful way to, to start, you know, your conversations. And I, and I know, um, uh, that some people just genuinely just, you know, really, um, do care about what people are feeling. And, and I think there needs to be a a more, uh, sensitive kind of uh, way of having that conversation without it just being just a platitude, you know?
1: One of the things that I did, I I think I posted about this on LinkedIn because one of the things that I've talked about in some of the like online group things that I've been doing is if you are having a moment at the beginning of any call that's about genuinely catching up, then how are you doing is not not a good enough question because it it feeds into that what you've just said there. So I always say, actually start with asking, what have you struggled with this week, right? So when you start with that question, you give the opportunity rather than to ask the generic question where everyone always leans towards doing okay. You say, what have you struggled with this week? And you're forcing is probably the wrong word, but you're putting the person you're asking into a position to think about that stuff. Then you have the opportunity to validate that. So they might say, I don't know, I'm struggling with missing my mum and sister in London, right? Then we've had that conversation. We've done the validation point. Then we can do the positive and and the hopeful bit where, We validate that it's okay to struggle like that. I recognize that struggle and feel it too. And then we say the generic thing afterwards, but you know, I'm doing all right and people have it worse and all of that stuff, because I do think there's a place for that stuff, but it shouldn't come at the expense of what you've just spoke about then, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you kind of knew the question was coming. I didn't know you was going to do that, Mm -hmm. but the moment you said, describe it in one word, I I instantly felt a sense that actually he wants me to tell him the truth I can tell him what I'm really feeling yeah so you know to set it up like that because I do think at the beginning of any video call it can feel very uh inauthentic and planned if you try and say let's do a minute to just check in with each other
0: and if we're really honest Josh it's not just about video calls like it's a oh god yeah. it's yeah. a very british male thing to do as well which is i'm not going to talk about how i'm feeling i'm not going to talk about my emotions and um you know that is a sweeping generalization and i know it's not the case with everyone but just generally speaking it, it's a bit like yeah yeah everything's fine you yeah know? and i think um that's just something that's kind of a wider uh a wider challenge which is about being comfortable to be open
1: yeah yeah comfortable in that kind of the vulnerability of showing who you truly are in all of your, you know, in all of your emotion, which is my bag. But, 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 but despite it being my bag, you know, I find it very easy to as well as fall into that trap of, i always wanting people to think I'm okay. You know what I mean? Mm. I might allude to my struggle, but then I'll take it back as well. So I'll say, I've had a difficult week, but I'm all right. I've sorted it all out. And that's why I'm presenting it to you. Do you know what I mean? Mm. The way you package it and hide it, and the
0: well, you're the, the resilience coach, right? Like you, you've
1: got you've got to have it Do You like you got to know what's going on. Well, there is there is a hint of that. I mean, you'll know that the, the, the way I talk about resilience is is actually different from that. And I stress that actually when we're doing exactly what we're saying here, that you shouldn't do that. Actually, that's not being resilient. That's yeah, exactly. That's kind of running away. But but there's certainly a sense as as being the guy who talks about mental health and all of that kind of stuff. Um, I know there's a part of me that thinks don't, you know, you don't want to look you struggling too much. Who's going to, who's going to want to, you know, speak to you and use your services if you're struggling yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So there's a, there's a lot to be said for how that plays out, but I do have a sense and some people do say it to me sometimes, you know, about, I hope one day I can get as sort of well emotionally as you. And then when they say that, I feel like a little bit, like I failed in my job. Or in my message, because my message is that we're all on a sliding scale and actually you just sort of move, you flutter in and out of, of those different phases.
0: Um, I'm really glad you used the word flutter there because it, it brings me nicely into um, <laughs> my segue. Uh, so another part of my conversation with Noah yesterday, I was able to um, just think about a, a A quote I absolutely love and I've shared it with you before and I think it's really important as we kind of talk about the next topic Um, and the quote is we delight in the beauty of the butterfly but really admit the changes it has gone through to achieve that beauty and that is by the irrepressible amazing
1: Maya Angelou and I've shared that with you before right yeah can I just interrupt very quickly before you go on you shared it with me and it is the quote that's used at the beginning of my resilience workshop Uh, as a result (laughs) (laughs) so actually the in-person one I've not been using it online but when I do it in person yeah yeah obviously I'm that fond of it I use it sorry I mean
0: uh, we talked about that when I when I really I, I when you first took me through your journey and you know it's amazing to see you as you are today but you've been through an incredible journey um, and you alluded to it earlier um, that this is a significant week. Um, and I'd just love to like hear more about why it's significant and, and what
1: this week means to you. Okay, so without giving the whole sort of back catalogue, let me tell you about this week um, in 2012. So it was the 14th of May that I woke up and I stopped drinking, never drank, I have never, I've not drank a drop of alcohol since or... Touched any drugs or smoked cigarettes even um, since that day when I woke up. But if we imagine that at the point of recording this, we're on the twelfth of May, so it was two days before. Like when I think back of it, and I and I, I think in the current situation, I struggle to get to not get emotional talking about it in this way. Like I was, my life was 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 over. My life was done. Um, I was deeply deeply depressed heavily suicidal i didn't want to be here i was um i didn't i saw my four children on the weekends and when i did i was drunk i I wasn't a father to them um in any stretch of it aside from priding myself on the fact that i always paid the money the child maintenance money that i had to pay every week um I wasn't a father in that sense, and I, and I was in so much pain. It's unreal, and I'm talking internal pain. My life, I was my life was a mess. I was seventeen thousand pounds in debt at the time. I was living on a fold-out bed in my mum's house. I was about five stone lighter than what I am now. Uh, I was just skin and bones, and I would my days consisted of smoking drugs during the day to get me through work, and I always held down a job. Uh, And then at night, I would drink alcohol and and mix it with enough drugs. And by that time, I'm talking just cannabis, really, although I used other drugs, the main things were cannabis and um, alcohol. And on the 13th of May, which was like tomorrow, uh, eight years ago, the last time I drank, it was the day when uh, Man City won the league in the last kick of the game. You remember Aguero scored the goal and he he, he, it was like Joey Barton had done all that crazy stuff and I was in the pub and what had happened that was obviously a weekend and I'd had my children the day before and I can't say this about crying. I took, I took my, I took them to the pub and because I got too drunk, I took my kids home uh, back to their mum, and I went back to the pub and I started on a bender that, in my mind, I was I was sure that I was going to not come back from. That was the idea of this bender. And that was on like this, I'm sure that was the Saturday because I think the final game would have been on a Sunday, but it might have been Friday and Saturday. But the next day was that day and I was in the pub and I remember just looking around the pub when Aguero scored the goal and the pub was rammed full, the pub that I used to drink in. It was only a little local pub. And I remember when it goes Aguero, and then the pub was going crazy and everyone was jumping up and down, including me, just going mental, chucking beer and everything everywhere. And I remembered I sat down and I looked around the pub and there was, like, people coming in front of me and cheering and going mad. And I was, like, one of the Jack the Lads in that pub. Like, I was, like, really known in there. as It was Josh from the Wheatie and all that. And I looked around and I thought, I'm not connected to any of you in here. My life's a joke. Like I'm jumping around and laughing and screaming with all of you. And I I don't want to be here anymore. Now, the landlord of the pub um, had sort of taken me under his wing. And I stayed in the pub that night when everyone went home. And we had like this big heart to heart. And he said to me, do you think your problem is alcohol? And I, for the first time of any meaning, I said, yeah. And, uh, we had a big heart to heart and I woke up on the, on the sofa at my mum's the next day with a text from him saying, you, you still going to do it? You're going through with this. And, and I told him I was going to stop drinking and I tried to kind of get out of it. And then he took me to a 12 step meeting, like fellowship meeting that I went to for the first time. And I've not drank any alcohol or had any drugs or or smoked or anything since then. So that was like the period of sort of three days in the build-up to what happened. Um and yeah, 14th of May will sort of remains the date eight years ago when my life began to change, although not necessarily for the positive straight away.
0: I mean, every time I hear that, I it still like knocks me for six, just kind of uh under understanding where you were. Um and then where you got to. And actually, I was thought the moment of change was when the landlord kind of said, right, we're going. But yeah. actually, when you just told it then, there was the lucid moment when you were looking around. Yeah. Where you suddenly thought, well, I'm not connected to any of these people. What do you think drove that feeling in that moment?
1: I'd been... I'd been moving towards so it was like a series of happenings that had happened so a year before uh, I trapped my foot my left foot in a machine at work Um, I was working for a manufacturing company as a transport manager and I um, trapped my left foot in the tail lift of a Luton van so when the tail lift comes up and joins to the bed my foot in a steel toe cap was uh, hanging over the edge and it crushed my left foot so badly that I had the half of my big toe and the next two toes along long amputated uh, so I spent a lot I spent like a week in hospital for that um, and then had to go back and have them amputated and I was off work for like four months and in that month my drinking and drug abuse like really really took off but also my manager of the company had said, look, this was an accident. These things happen. This is why I pay insurance. Um, you're not suing me, he said, but, but you should claim for an accident. And then I was going to get a substantial amount of money that would clear my debt and sort my life out. And I remember my best mate at the time saying to me, because everyone was saying, oh, your life will be all back together. You'll get your life back together when you can clear all your debt. You know, I'd been through like a difficult kind of breakup and all that stuff. And everyone said, you, get, you can get your life back. And I remember my mate saying to me, looking me in the eye with a, big, a bit of a grin on his face. And he said, you do know when you get that money, you won't sort your life out. Do you? I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, there's no way you clear your debt with that money. And I remember thinking he's right. I won't. I won't clear my debt. In fact, I will, I will go on the biggest sort of drug-fueled bender I've ever been on. So that, that happened. That was about a so year can before.
0: I, let me ask you something. Do you think he was observing or was he um, sort of goading, instigating, wanting you to spend it a bit and obviously no, he'll, so he'll, the, he'll benefit from it?
1: The guy I'm talking about was, we were really, really close. We were tight. Yeah. I mean, we were proper friends, really. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd known him for for a good few years, way before my sort of drink and I took off in the way that it did. So he was... He was, being, he, yeah. he was being a good mate, really, a good yeah. friend. Um, and that was a year before. And then uh, because I was involved in football violence as well, um, about six months before I stopped drinking, um, I was punched in the face and my jaw uh, snapped in three different places and dislocated at the left hinge. So part of my jaw had sort of come off so I had to have a big operation and have all plates and stuff to sort of screw my face back together but when I was in the hospital I was up north in Blackpool and I got rushed to Preston hospital I tried to take my own life seriously tried to take my own life I was under um was given loads of intravenous morphine for the pain and I had loads of cocaine on me and I tried to overdose and I was convinced it would kill me but it didn't but when I woke up the next morning the sort of 20 of my my good what I thought were my good close friends um, that I traveled up there in a minibus with. When I woke up in the morning and rang them up and said, look, I'm going to get out of this hospital. Can you come and pick me up? They were already back in Swindon. So they traveled home that morning, despite me being in emergency surgery, and left me there. And I remember I traveled back on the on the, on the the train from there. And I remember thinking, this is over. This is over. This is not for me. Something's wrong. This isn't up. But I never spoke to anyone about it, and I hadn't really done anything about it. And then that was in, like, um, the early part of the year. Uh, and then I think I was always sort of heading towards I'm either going to get that payout and it's all going to be over, as in I'll, I'll finally end my life. Or something's going to happen and, and there'll be change. So, I like, I, was, I felt like I was heading towards those two, those two points for about a year. And I got sober about three months before, you know, I received the payout. So it was like a series of like unfortunate happenings that were some of the best things that ever happened to me because they led me down that path. So some
0: of the people listening will have been hearing this stuff for the first time, right? So what they're hearing is, uh, someone who was always on drink and drugs, football Mm -hmm. violence, uh, Possibly making an assumption about carelessness or being under the influence, therefore uh, that might have caused your accident. But these were all outcomes of something, right? These were all outcomes of uh, things that you had gone through in your life previous as a as a kid mm-hmm. that have mm-hmm. led you to that pathway, right? It's not just that that's that's just what you did for recreational fun. Yeah. And you've talked about this a lot, you know, but I think for on our podcast we've we've never really talked about it.
1: So at the time when I first got sober, I didn't I didn't realise that I'd had a difficult life. I didn't realise I had any reason to feel the way that I did. And I you know, because for all my life I had buried down how I felt. I buried my emotions. And what happened was is I got to nine months sober and I was now set up in this place, I cleared my debt, the payout had happened. And now I didn't have alcohol and drugs to to sort of blame my issues on. And I felt worse than I'd ever felt in my life. And I made a decision to take my own life again. um, And I went to see my kids for one last time. And because I knew I was going to die, the past became irrelevant. And the future was non-existent. And I felt very, very at peace. I felt like I was making a selfless decision. And I went to see my kids and because of that fact that I knew I was going to die, I was present with them in a way I'd never experienced before. I remember cuddling my daughter and feeling it in a way that I'd never experienced. I remember my boy going down the slide, and when he got to the bottom, he looked at me, and I realized we were connected in a way that I'd never experienced before. And I changed my mind. But more importantly than changing my mind, I realized that what was killing me was coming from inside. It was a couple of weeks later, or a couple of months later, that I walked into the charity Nakoa that I'm now an ambassador for, they support children affected by their parents drinking. And I didn't realize I had a problem with that. I didn't realize that's what I was struggling with. And I entra- I trained to be a counselor there. And within the first hour of the first session, I completely changed my whole idea of what had happened to me when I was younger. And I recognized just how impacted I was by my dad's drinking. I lost my dad when I was nine years old. And, um, I was all, I was such a sensitive boy. I recognize now, you know, I feel everything really, really deeply. And my, my dad was, you know, quite a violent, angry, chaotic man when he was drunk and when he was sober. Um, and my mum was so entrapped in that, you know, the addiction and everything that came with it. She wasn't emotionally able to, um, nurture some of my deeper feelings. Um, So emotionally, I was lonely from a very young age. You know, I felt all these things that I never got to explore. And so I developed a way of pushing them down. Of course, my mum, who's an amazing human being, um, was just under the stress that she was under. But I sensed as a child, intuitively, that she was under that stress. And so I didn't want to bring any of my stress to the table. So, you know, I talk about how when, when your authenticity, authenticity being knowing what I'm feeling, what I need as a result, and then how to communicate that, when that threatens attachment to your parent, it's your authenticity that loses out. So I pushed down and I buried all my emotions and I, and I showed up how I thought the world wanted me to be, which was brave, strong, courageous. Yeah. And the world congratulated me for that, but it came at the expense of myself. It meant that I was always running away from these feelings and emotions. And I was from a very young age, consistently developing um, unhealthy coping strategies really to, to deal with those emotions. And Look, my depression for me was my depressed emotions, right? Emotions that were too painful for me to experience and feel alone. So I pushed them down and buried them. And they came out of me in things like rage, anger, which fed into um, the football violence and the gangs when I was younger. Um, you know, that want to be needed and to feel loved um, was was what I was seeking within the gangs and the football violence too but I'd never processed it and and, and experienced it in the way that I should. Um, And so I now start to recognize just how influenced we all are by our childhood. And this isn't about blame or um, shirking of responsibility. This is just about understanding how I reached the stage that I was able to do the things in my life that were, that were, and are hugely reprimandable. Right. And, 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 and you can't justify but we can we can start to understand what why and how they may come about
0: uh you know I mean there's there's just so much to unpack for uh, for a lot of people who who will be uh, listening to this and it will resonate for them in particular ways you know mm. it, you know maybe to do with uh, the sensitivity, it may be to do with. Uh, kind of trauma coping strategies it may be to do with addiction so it's quite an incredible journey and and actually what you know what you've done is you've summarized very quickly what is a a very difficult and uh, arduous journey that you've had over several years so eight years on Thursday that's an incredible feat you know Um,
1: is it willpower alone that stops you from drinking uh no 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 it's much it's much um less than willpower i mean originally i went to 12 step fellowships and i you know i sort of do dip in, in and out of them still now at the beginning but being around a whole group of people that were experiencing and going through the same thing as me was important um but for me it's been much more about healing that part of myself and reconnecting with my core sense of of self and understanding who that is now a lot of what I talk about what I experienced when you know we look at the hugely traumatic parts of it w- which of course is, is, is a natural thing to do but actually so much of us can so many of us can lose our core sense of self when we're younger for lots of different reasons we have to first by the way accept that in our initial years uh, particularly the first four years but probably the first nine years our brains are developing at their fastest rate. Right. And then de- this is basic science they're, they're, they're developing based on the environment in which we're in. Right. So we, 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 our responses and stuff are formed in those initial years. Right. Now, if you happen to be sensitive, um, like I was and, um, if you don't have a parent that is as doesn't, that, that can't match that emotional capacity, then you will feel like you can't, express and share certain emotions right so when you feel like you can't express and share certain emotions then you're you're pushing them down so you grow up with this idea that certain emotions actions and feelings are a burden right because because you learn on on how you the responses that you get from your parent when you're younger if that begins to happen and that can happen you don't need bad parents or or you know you don't need parents who are getting it wrong you just need parents with a different emotional capacity to your own you're already starting to uh, have these issues and it makes you feel that um, your love when you're a child is conditional. When you're a child, your love should be unconditional because you should be loved for your full range of emotions. You should be loved when you're angry. You should be loved when you're sad. You should be loved when you're rageful, when you're jealous, when you're hateful. All of these things are human emotions, but when we're children, our our parents or caregivers should, should love us unconditionally for that. Many of our parents, for whatever reasons. And there's a million and one different reasons don't have the capacity to do that. So, so much of my healing has been as an adult starting to understand that actually I don't need to change who I am. I need to rediscover exactly who I am. So I need to rediscover those sensitive parts of myself. I need to know that I'm allowed to get easily overwhelmed by films I'm allowed to be as sensitive as I am, right? I'm allowed to know that I need to recoup on my own, right? In my, away from people. I need to learn these things about myself because what I used to do is feel like they came with a sense of shame. And so I just be someone else and I'm not supposed to be someone else. When I'm being somebody else, I'm lonely. Emotionally, I'm lonely. Forget how many people I've got around me. Emotionally, I'm lonely. When I reconnect with that core sense of self, who I truly am with my full range of emotions and know that that's okay. That's when I feel most at ease. That's when I feel most like who I'm supposed to be. And so I may have stopped using alcohol and mind altering substances, right? Apart from caffeine, if you want to argue that, right? I may have stopped using them, but that doesn't mean that I'm free from addiction. I still do lots of things to avoid the ways that I feel. And I tend to use behaviors now. And more importantly, what I do in my life today is I use behaviors that nobody will call you out on. If I'm running away from a certain type of feeling and I'm doing it by helping everyone, yeah, and just helping as many people as I can 24-7 all of the time, everyone just says, wow, Josh is just, you know, he just cares so much about everyone else he's helping. No one's going to say, Josh, you know what? Something's going on here, mate. You know, just because you're helping everybody, there's, there's something going on, Yeah. So I pick addictions to escape the ways that I feel that the world doesn't call me out on, um, and I think we all do that as people to some varying degree. So it's less about willpower and more about internal work, really. I mean, I sort of knew that, and but I think I need, you know, yeah, I needed, I know, I needed, I, know, to, yeah. I
0: needed to hear it. And I mean, you've done a lot of work as well, right? You've done a lot of work since, you know, over the last eight years, really you know, trying to discover, learn, you know, I know you're a big fan of Cabo Mate and, and, um, you know, there are lots of learnings and practices that you've put in place that help you kind of with your journey for somebody that is like curious or at the end and wants to make a change uh, about being able to be more in tune with who they are, you know, and listening to themselves, rediscovering, how do you start?
1: So you have to make, firstly, you have to make designated space for it within your life, right? So one of the most important things that I do is um, I have, for me now, it's 20 minutes every morning where I go silent, okay? And in that time, that's when I um, unpack and listen to who I am, what I'm feeling I've used. And in that 20 minutes, and it's sometimes can be longer. It sometimes can be a little bit shorter, but in that period of time, I've tried lots of different things that are all about turning within. So I've done inner child work, I've done body scans, meditation, all different types of meditation, different types of mindfulness. I do all of those things and and, and I've searched for what works for me and what's best in, in terms of how I'm feeling. And it helps to turn me inward. I would say that the place to start with that is that there's part of your brain, you know, there's that voice always going on in your mind. Yeah. And you can hear that talking all the time. It never shuts up, right? Mm. So there's obviously a part of your brain that listens to that as well. So in the morning, in, them, in that time, my, one of my core focuses is not to not think, but it's actually to become the listening part of my brain, right? Now, that might sound quite simplistic in terms of 20 minutes every morning to make such a deep and meaningful change on your life. But if you asked me uh, why, I'm, why I've got muscles in the way that I have, yeah, I would tell you because I've worked them out and I've worked them out for most days regularly for the last six years. And if you said to me, how do I get them in three months? I'd say you won't. Yeah. Because it's consistent. It's about consistently doing these things. And the further we get, the longer you train and work out. Yeah. The deeper, you know, the stronger you're going to get. And internally it's the same. I, I, I do believe that. So, you know, I, I'll never flog a quick fix because I don't believe there is one. Although there's lots of people out there suggesting that yeah, there is, right?
0: Try and avoid those people.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Right. So um, there is no quick fix, but creating the space, creating the time, um, is a good place to start. Yeah. And then it's about continuous, repetitive, consistent behaviours that kind of help you get to that place.
1: Yeah, and also, by the way, you know, know that you should seek help and I'm not just talking about um, therapy, right? Mm. That's one, that's different, there's a million and one different therapies as well, by the way, but you know, whatever it is that you need to help you, then you should be seeking to do it rather than um, feeling like that's a weakness. But that said, I'm a very insular person, right? In the way that I work, I really, I, I do my workings out on my own and in my mind, and then I go through them with somebody. And that's just what works for me. So there should be no, this is going to be counterproductive what I'm saying, but there, there should be no shoulds. <laughs> the only should is that there should be no shoulds. Yeah. You shouldn't, you know, don't listen to anyone that says you have to do this or you should do that. And the one thing that I've had to do over the eight years is remain fluid. I mean, I we've known each other like, what, two years now? Mm. I don't know if you've seen it, but I, I, I change my perception a hell of a lot on how things work and what's right and what's wrong and stuff like that. I'm changing it all of the time. One of my, my main mantras is I wake up every morning with the firm belief that I could be wrong about everything that I've ever believed. And Hass is always right. And- <laughs> You wake
0: up, Huss is right. He's always right.
1: The weird thing is, as I genuinely probably do have somewhat of that belief. (laughs) So, so yeah. um, It's all about a journey. Don't, you know, with anything, with, with any of the work that I do, um, I always tell people don't make this a destination. You know, Mm -hmm. with the resilience work that I do, I say, don't try and be resilient. Try and build upon your resilience. Yeah. Cause it's a journey. And if you think that all of a sudden one day you're going to wake up and think now I'm resilient, that'll be the moment when you, when your resilience is gone. Cause cause you think you've made it.
0: I've been talking about, um, an IG story, um, from my number one hero, Dwayne Johnson, <laughs> the rock. Uh, no, but it's good. Actually. It's a good one. So, um, uh, he was talking about obviously with the lockdown, um, he was in the middle of shooting a movie and uh they had to stop. And mm-hmm. so people ask him, like, well, what what you doing, what's your routine? And he said, Look, I you know, I train every day, I work out every day. And it was this one statement that just got really landed really well. Um, he said, It's um it's harder to get in shape than to stay in shape. Yeah. And I loved I love that metaphor for life, really, for everything, yeah. right? You know, because um, for somebody that's kind of put the work in, unless you do it every day, you'll lose the shape, you know, and yeah. then it's going to be much harder to get back in shape. Yeah. So I think that's a really powerful metaphor.
1: Yeah. And we need to get more like that. I think in terms of when we talk about the mind, like, so for example, get, I don't know, getting a therapist or getting a counselor in, in Western society is still seen as something that you would do if there was something wrong, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You like it's remedial. Yeah. If I said, oh, I'm seeing a therapist, you would be like, oh, no, what's wrong? But if I said, oh, I'm going to see a PT, they like, say, oh, cool, yeah, you're taking it to the next level, right? Yeah. So we need to kind of match those two things up. I always remember Leah, my wife, um, you know, she's really into fitness. She's done some of these, like, uh, the competitions before that they do, yeah, when uh, uh, the fitness competitions, excuse me. And she, um, when we're at, like, parties and stuff sometimes, she'll turn down, like a bit of cake or something. And people will often say to her, you don't need to do that. You don't need to watch your weight. And she's always said, it frustrates me a little bit because the same people that say that to me will say, oh, you're so lucky with your figure. And she's like, no, I'm not. I, I train and I work hard for this, yeah? Mm. So I think the same, that kind of um, ideal is similar when we're talking about our minds, right? Um, although... I would say we have a lot less control over our minds. You can do all the work in the world, by the way, and then wake up and everything's a bit black. Do you know what I mean? So it is slightly different, but, but you get the kind of meaning behind what I'm saying.
0: Um, so listen, this is a reflective week for you uh, mm-hmm. on everything that's happened, but I think it's also a celebratory week as well. Yeah. And before we move into our kind of usual reasons to be cheerful, um, give me one thing you're reflecting on um and one thing you're celebrating
1: that kind of pops to your head one thing that i'm reflecting on what in terms of the 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 week that i've got the week that i'm in yeah, yeah
0: this this week yeah a reflection that you've had or or having i suppose uh,
1: like i really have done a lot of reflecting about my my value so i think probably when i first met you um I remember when you used to say, oh, this is like amazing, this thing that you've got and you could do that. And I used to think, I don't know what he's on about, right? I'm just, so I, I'm I'm much more accepting and can see my value and I can recognize when I've done something good in my life. And that makes me tear up when I say stuff like that because I never, like, I promise you, I never ever thought that anything that I did or touched or was involved in could be anywhere near good. At my core, I believe that I was a bad, bad human being. And now I have so much more compassion for myself, but not just compassion. I recognize my value and I've been reflecting on that a lot more and it's helped me in my life and in the work that I do because it's made me feel like I can go to people and say, here's what I do. Um, What do you think of it? Yeah. So, I guess that's what I've been reflecting on a lot, you know, how far I come that normally happens this year. And what was the other, what was the other thing? What bit? are you celebrating? <laughs> well, this is, <laughs> I'm celebrating my family. Um, I'm celebrating what I've managed to build. Let me tell you this, right. When I was a kid, I, all I wanted, when people wanted to be firemen and policemen and doctors and stuff, all I wanted was to have loads of kids and for them to just... Tick? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Which I achieved by 20. <laughs> uh, I wanted to have loads of kids and I wanted them to... Uh, As a
0: reminder, everyone, Josh has six children.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which, by the way, with the new rules that have just been announced, means I can have the best game of World Cup doubles out there, mate. Yeah, you're allowed to Absolutely. play sport with everyone. You were from forward family, thinking. Yeah. You were
0: strategic yeah. uh,
1: planning when you I were saw doing the that. virus coming, mate. Yeah. Um So I was having a really nice moment then. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but listen, that, I, I just wanted to be a dad, have loads of kids, and not be an alcoholic. And I wanted my kids to look at me. I wanted, you know, in my house, there's no pictures of my dad. My kids don't really know what he looks like. They know that he existed and that he was poorly and that he died when I was young, right? I want my kids, when they they have their kids, to have a picture of me on the wall, you know, center of the mantelpiece, big six-foot thing, uh but I want them to been know like uh, Brendan Rogers right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah but I want the kids to when they when their kids say who's that I want them to say that's, that's your granddad and he's a good man and I feel like you know if if I left the world tomorrow my kids would know that I've been the best possible version of myself so that's what I celebrate and that's what I celebrate every year and that's what my whole family celebrates we all do M- me my kids and my wife
0: Amazing, yeah that's amazing Josh and uh um, yeah, it's a very emotional week, and so you know it brings us very nicely onto to reasons to be cheerful, right, yeah. which is you and I looking at what's making us cheerful this mm-hmm. week. And I was going to say you, but I'm sort of bored about talking about you. Uh, <laughs> I was just
1: thinking, <laughs> like, this is feeding into all of my sort of narcissistic uh, the, tendencies. Um, the whole thing's been about you
0: know, me. <laughs> I am very proud of you and I'm very cheerful and um, very happy and honoured to know you and be a mate and um, have your like trust. And I really appreciate you waking up in the morning and thinking about me being right. You know the whole time. Um, so listen, I'm not going to say you. I'm going to say endorphins. Okay. I'm going to say endorphins. And uh, uh, I'm 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 40, nearly 41. Um, I was overweight as a as a as a kid, as as you know, and um, uh, not an athlete. Never got picked for any of the sports. I think I got put into certain teams out of pity. Um, so I, you know, I played some, on uh, some sports, but I was never an athlete. Uh, so all of my formative years were in, as, as a kid, I'm not an athlete. And then, um, and then when I sort of hit 17, 18, um, it all dropped off and I became really skinny. I went the other way and I had super high metabolism, so I didn't feel like I needed to do anything. And then I was out partying and all that sort of stuff and I didn't pay any attention and then I got towards the end of my 20s, and then kids started coming along. So I then became very uh, home life, comfortable, sedentary. And actually, I put on a fair bit of weight back then again. So, this whole period, my whole kind of 30s, I never really pushed myself physically mm. uh, because I never really had to. And, um, and I've, I've, I've messed around and and stuff like that. And, um, but I am, I'm on a hot streak at the moment of working out, eating well. And every day I, uh, I wake up and I, I don't look forward to the exercise so much, but I look forward to the feeling of it during and after. Mm. And, and it feeds the rest of my day. It feeds me in this podcast right now and the energy I've got for it. So my reason to be cheerful this
1: week is endorphins. I love that one. It's, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, this is a podcast, so they can't see you. But you are looking as trim as I've ever seen you, you look, I reckon. Yeah. But not just trim, by the way. I do reckon when somebody's working out and they're sort of looking after themselves properly, there's a kind of, I can't think of the word, vitality. Well, a glow? a glow, a glow, yeah. Especially because you're 40. Do you know what I mean? Which is massively <laughs> old and over the hill. I mean, look, you do look really good for 40. Thanks, man. 40 <laughs> going on 20 27. I'm, I'm, I'm joking. 40s, 40s, not that old. Um, so, reasons to be cheerful for me. What I'm going to go with today. What I want to. Uh, I, I just thought of this this morning. Really, is I just wanted to talk about just very quickly about Nakoa. Um, somebody the reason it came up somebody contacted me yesterday they um have got like a senior role within a university and they just said will you do us a little video because i want to put it as part of like the hub of support so i was like yeah that's fine of course and i shot it today so i've got my nicoa t-shirt on as well but um and i want to talk just quickly more about the people within nicoa like and and the volunteers there you know that NACOA stayed open through the whole of this. For anyone that doesn't know, it's a helpline that supports people affected by their parents drinking. And there's particularly, I'll say a name, actually, a girl called Evie, who is a helpline counselor there. Um, And she's been going in to NACOA and answering those helpline calls nearly every day, six days a week, I think, throughout this whole pandemic, right? And has, you know, probably received barely any congratulations, right? Barely any mention, Um, and I guess not just NACOA, but all small charities that are out there. There's another charity I've done some work for recently called, um, just drop in and they're raising money by they're walking up a mountain, but using their staircases at home. Mm -hmm. And there's so many small charities out there that in these difficult times when everyone's probably holding on to money and things like that a bit more, they're all finding amazing ways to keep going. And I just thought that, you know, when you see them, I just think it's incredible really that there's people out there in this world and I think you've alluded on it to a, a, another podcast a little while ago that you hope is something that we that continues but uh yeah I just thought it was a really nice uh reason to be cheerful fantastic
0: what a fantastic uh conversation Josh thanks very much uh for sharing you know I've heard it before but every time I hear it it's you know it it kind of stops me in my tracks uh, mm. Big shout out to Evie as well, who's kind of putting all the effort into uh, the, the work that she's doing for Nakoa. Mm. And I suggest that we uh, dedicate this episode to Evie.
1: Yes, let's dedicate it to Evie. I would have liked to dedicate it to me, but let's do it to Evie. <laughs> well,
0: you had you had your moment. This, <laughs> My this moment. is Evie's. <laughs> no, all but right. definitely, mate. What a way to end. Brilliant. Anything else
1: to Anything else to say? No, just. Thank you, really, I think, for making, you know, doing this episode like this. Uh, it's, you know, it's so, it is a massive week to me. It's a massive week to me and my family, and it's really something that I'm very grateful for. So, um, yeah, people don't have to worry. This is the only episode that we'll do on me, apart from next year, when we do nine years, yeah, <laughs> episode 105. Exactly. <laughs> See you later, everyone. Thanks again for listening to 115 Miles with Josh Connolly and Hassan Khan.